Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Line Press, and uh, if you're joining us, you're one of our visitors and guests, thank you for giving us your time and yourselves, and look forward to meeting you after the service. We are beginning a short series on, on Advent, uh, which we typically have not done at this church. We tend to just continue along with the series that we are in, but felt that maybe it was appropriate to finally consider more intentionally the coming of Jesus. And so for the next three Sundays, we're going to look at particular passages that speak to the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we begin with a well-known passage here today in Isaiah chapter 9, which is a classic, so to speak, text on predicting and foreshadowing and prophesying about the coming of a Savior. And so let's read this passage together. If you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. This is God's Word. I pray that your hearts and minds would be open and teachable and moldable to receive God's Word here today. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in a later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they, are, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is God's word today. You could take your seats. <clears throat> now, Advent is uh, a word that comes from the Latin, which translates a Greek word, uh, parousia, which is the return of Jesus. And essentially, Advent is a season and time that we consider eagerly long and hope for the return of Jesus Christ. One pastor by the name of Lou Giglio, he says the word Advent means expectation. And what it does for us as believers and Christians is that it could create a sense of hope, a sense of longing in a world that's not quite perfect, a little bit dark and broken. Now, Henri Nguyen, who continues this idea of Advent, and he says, essentially, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent, is what he says. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And so in one sense, entire lives that we live as Christians and followers is really about Advent. We're longing for Jesus, a restoration, a hope, a, a light that could shine into a world that feels very, very gloomy and dark. You know, even in the prayer meeting this morning with some of the leaders, it's appropriate that it is gloomy here this morning. It is rainy. It is, it is cold, at least relatively to the West Coast. And this is the world that we live in. 
And so as we begin to consider this expectation about a hope in Jesus, we look at Isaiah chapter 9. He's a famous prophet with a famous prophecy, prophesying about a famous birth in Jesus Christ. And what Isaiah tries to convey to you and I is that in this broken world, an honest assessment of a world that's imperfect, that's dark and gloomy, there is a legitimate, eager, tangible hope that comes not in resources or techniques, but in a person born in a manger as a helpless baby. So in a dark and broken world, there is a legitimate hope in the light of day, a dawning of a new age that comes with a person who will die for your sins and rise again from the dead. Isaiah will fill this picture in, you know, as the Old Testament anticipates the New Testament, the New Testament concludes and elucidates the Old, we'll get a picture that's colored much richer and deeper by looking at Isaiah. And so there's two simple points as we consider Advent here today, two broad pictures that are broken up into this passage. And essentially, we're going to look first at a very dark world that we live in, the deep darkness of life. And then secondly, as Isaiah leads us, we'll look at the hope to overcome and to persevere and to live in this darkness that ultimately comes in a baby. So we'll look at the darkness and the experiences of our culture and our lives, but also to look at a legitimate, real, tangible hope that comes in a person to help us overcome the darkness. But let's consider what Isaiah is talking about back then and also appropriate that for today. What is this darkness? What, what is this brokenness? What is this sort of dreariness, this rainy season that we are experiencing. And first point in deep darkness, we get this from verse 2. Read what it says right there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. There's deep darkness and there's darkness. They're walking in it. They're dwelling in it. It's a picture of hopelessness, a picture of suffering, a picture of dreadfulness, a picture even of depression. Now, let me explain a little bit about the context of Isaiah so you can understand what in the world Isaiah is talking and speaking into because you have to know sort of the original audience and the context to really make sense of it, even for modern people like you and me today. So what is going on in Isaiah chapter 9? Well, it's a continuation of the entire biblical narrative because there is something called a Davidic covenant where God says to King David, there will, someone, there will be someone on your throne ruling in righteousness and justice forever. I will make sure that there will always be a king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what God told David. And then you fast forward and since that time in the land of the promised land, you have a northern kingdom and then a southern kingdom, Judah. And that's the kingdom, that's the promised land, at least in the Old Testament. But now because of idolatry and sin, the people of God live in dark moments. The northern kingdom, that king has already been done by the time of Isaiah. And then in Isaiah chapter 7, we have the southern kingdom of Judah. The guy who's reigning at this point is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is being threatened by two kings in the northern area that are threatening to take over Judah. So King Ahaz has a decision here. Now that's every leader. What are you going to do? There's two kings and two nations and two armies that are going to threaten to come in. And by the way, the reason they're coming in is because... The nation of Judah was idolatrous, so God is going to punish them through his righteousness by sending foreign armies into the land. So what would you do if you're King Ahaz? 
Then you have this other guy who comes from the king of Syria. Assyria was the strongest nation of that time. So if you're trying to protect your land, you're thinking, I can look at my resources, which are not that much at this point. Two northern kings are trying to take over my land. What are you going to do? So he shakes his hand to the king of Assyria, and they form an alliance. And what Isaiah is trying to say is to remind him, don't ever form alliances with foreign nations. Trust in the God of Christianity. Believe in God and trust in Him, and don't trust in your resources, don't trust in contracts, don't trust in military might. Look by faith and not by sight, but what does Ahaz do? Well, we all know the story. He forms an alliance with Assyria, and then ironically, it wasn't the two northern kings that took over his land of Judah, it was the king of Assyria. And that all happened because of the heart and the darkness and the rebellion and the sin of God's people. And that's why Isaiah is speaking into this. He wants Ahaz to trust in God and not Assyria. And he says, the reason that you can trust in God is because even though you have a smaller army, I'm going to always be fulfilling the promise I made to David. There will always be a king in the land of Israel and Judah. And even if I have to send a baby that will be born through a virgin, and that baby will be the righteous and perfect king. Even if I have to do that, he's telling, Isaiah's telling Ahaz, I'll do it. I'll send a baby, a son that will be born. Unto you this day will be a king that is born. God will do it to make sure that his promise in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, will always come into fruition. You'll always have a man on the throne. Your kingdom will never end. Don't trust in Assyria. Trust in God's promises. Because behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they should call him Emmanuel, God is with us. But that's not what he did. That's the story, isn't it? He trusts by sight, not by faith, and so he makes this allegiance, and Assyria takes him over. And because of that sin, because of that lack of faith, that rebellion in the heart of mankind of Israel, idolatry, Israel and Judah were experiencing darkness. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 9. Darkness everywhere. A lostness. You ever see darkness isn't just a biblical theme. God created this world, so you understand darkness, don't you? That's why darkness doesn't really have an essence of itself. It's just an absence of light. You don't have clarity. Kids are scared of the dark. You don't see where you're going. There's confusion. There's something that's empty. It's dreary and it's scary. The biblical notion of darkness conveys all of that, but even more. In the Bible, darkness is a theme. Darkness was there in creation in Genesis 1. It was chaos, it was confusion, and God spoke light into it to create this wonderful world in which we call earth and the universe. Darkness is always associated with the grave and with death and evil and rebellion, depression. The biggest experiences that we see in mankind that are depressed and confused are always characterized by darkness. Case in point, that's the book of Job. And that's all because this world is broken as a result of man's rebellion. And once again, we see this with Israel. Darkness is everywhere. They always say that in Christmas time. Mental health seems to escalate. Depression escalates. Suicidal ideation escalates, especially during Christmas. So I think even if you're a believer or not, we can relate to darkness and emptiness, a sort of depression. Now, I saw on a friend's Instagram recently, she was reading... Oh, Henry's Gift of the Magi. You ever read that book? A short story about a, a couple, a young couple that were poor, trying to figure out how they can actually 
drum up a few cents to buy a present to show their love to one another. And the main heroine of the story, Della, it begins on Christmas Eve. She counts her money. She says, I have a dollar and 87 cents. And she wants to come up with more money so that she could be able to get a gift for her loved one. And at one point of the story, it basically says this, as she counts her money, scrambles for every cent that she has, $1.87, and at one point it says this, she fell onto the couch, and this instigated a moral reflection made up for sobs, smiles, and sniffles, with sniffles predominating all of life. Now, is that how you feel? Life has smiles, but it predominates with sobs and sniffles, because it's darkness. Even the culture will speak into this. So I want to dialogue with you a little bit on this first point about darkness, because it is something that we experience. And I am sort of extrapolating the darkness of verse 1 and verse 2, but I think it's legitimate. And I want to talk to you about depression a little bit, being down and out, feeling empty and lonely. Do you feel hopeless? And I'm getting a lot of this from a counselor by the name of Ed Welch, and he's written plenty of books and articles about the biblical perspective of depression. And he's helpful, so these are just broad guidelines. He himself struggles with this. He writes about it. And so I'm trying to give you a picture of what this may be for you personally, and then to kind of lead you to the light of the hope that you could have in the Son of Jesus Christ. So depression. They say depression can't be captured by a word, even though clinically it is called depression. But the experience of it is so profound. You feel numb, empty, hopeless. Inside, it feels that at one moment there are screams of pain and hurt, but then you feel utterly fatigued as if you can't get out of bed. You have anxiety that abounds and fears of everything in this world about paying the bills in your life and your children and your future. Your brain feels like it's always in a fog, he says, but your body feels so weighed down because depression is not just going to be spiritual, it's also physiological. You have very few goals. That's why people who are depressed, they can't get out of bed. It's dark and it's dreary. The things that used to excite you before, they don't really do anything for you. You can't have a reason to get up and to make sense of life. This guy, Robert Burton, wrote a book called The Anatomy of Melancholy, and this is what he says. If there is hell upon earth, it is to be found in a melancholy heart. They are in great pain, in horror of mind, distraction of soul, full of continual fears, cares, torments, anxieties. They can neither drink, eat, nor sleep. Welch goes on and says, depression is not just about pain. It's about meaningless pain, because if you have pain that leads to childbirth, then there's a lot of good joy that comes with this. But if you have pain that's meaningless and you don't see any point of it, all you have is blackness and despair. They say if you want to get a, a really visceral experience of what depression looks like, you know, if you're into art, go to the museum and look at Pablo Picasso. There's a season of his work called the Blue Period. And that was his own personal struggle with depression. And when you read or you look at his paintings during that period, people look lifeless in the Blue Period. It's only shades of blue and gray. And you won't find answers by looking at Picasso. But you will be reminded that you're in a world in which you're not alone, that everyone has a darkness that they experience. See, depression speaks, friends. Every emotion actually articulates a particular interpretation or experience of your life. That's depression. That's every emotion. But depression speaks a plethora of different experiences and interpretations. For some of us, 
Depression, when you feel it, this blueness, this grayness, it's saying, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of failing, being exposed, losing a loved one. I'm afraid of dying. Sometimes your depression and your lowliness, your gloom, speaks, I'm guilty of not measuring up, not being approved, of not living up to my own standards. I'm guilty of past sins. I don't feel that Jesus is forgiven. Sometimes depression says, I've lost something. For grieving and mourning people, I've lost a family member. I've lost my health, the ability to run. I've lost my reputation. I've lost my innocence. That could lead you into depression. Sometimes your depression speaks, I have no hope for life, for purpose, for meaning, for healing. And I think this is, if this is your experience, just know that you're not alone, but there is a lot of help there, but we can all relate and to resonate. But what Isaiah tries to do, what Christianity offers, which I think is probably the best solution, is that it's not ultimately going to lead you to a technique. It's going to lead you to a person whose name is Jesus. They say that when you feel depressed, the challenge is, is that you have to make decisions and live based on not what you feel, but what you believe about God and his promises. Now, Ed Welch even says depression in his experience, which is pretty vast, out of all the issues that he's counseled, depression in some level is the hardest because for some other situations, sometimes there's a bright moment in which people snap out of it and they kind of get healing and they get better and it's a little bit quick. Sometimes he could do that. But he says with depression, no one ever snaps out of it. It's a slow and arduous road in which step by step you're just trying to fight for meaning and purpose and light. And what Isaiah is saying is that there's darkness over the land. They're dwelling in deep darkness. Not just darkness, by the way. He says they walk in darkness, they dwell in deep darkness. So they are in evil. They are in tumult. They are in depression. They are in loneliness and chaos and lostness. And Isaiah says, you want a hope in this world? The ultimate hope comes in a person, in a baby, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so sometimes you share these truths with people who are struggling in the moment. And of course, you know, biblical answers and theology, they sound kind of trite. But for people who are sort of down and out, everything sounds trite. But if you could work at it slowly in community and worship, slowly the biblical truths and promises of a Savior, which once sounded trite, become a foundation of life-giving truth, slowly but surely. And that leads us to our second point. Let's look at that truth. How to overcome darkness comes in a helpless baby. This is rich and theological. We can't cover everything in Isaiah 9. We'd be here for another couple hours because there's themes from Genesis, there's themes from Exodus, there's themes from Judges, and we're probably going to take a moment to look at Judges. But we see light here in our second point. There's a reversal even in verse 2, isn't there? The first thing to notice about Isaiah chapter 9 is that even though he's prophesying about the future, the verb tenses are past. He uses past tenses because that's something common in the biblical prophets. It's something they call a prophetic past tense because they're talking about the future, but they use past tense because that gives encouragement to the people to say what's happening in the future, what will happen, is definitely sure and secure and is guaranteed. That's why they say they express this in past tenses. He has seen the light, past tense. 
He has, the light has shown, past tense. He increased its joy. He has broken the rod of the oppressor. Those are all future realities of healing and hope and light coming into this world. But he talks about the future in a past tense to say, in God's plan for you, it is guaranteed. You got this. Have a little bit of hope. And then he explains the reason that there is this great reversal in that he can speak in a prophetic past tense, he gives three reasons in verses 4, 5, and 6. They all explain this light because verses 4, 5, and 6, they all begin with the same word for or because. So there will be a great light. There will be healing. The rod will be for, verse 4, for, verse 5, for, and verse 6. There's an explanation there. Let's read verse 4 at least. It says, for the yoke of his burden, which is a reference to Exodus, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, so there's a reference to Gideon and Judges, and there's a reference to Exodus, that there's a slavery that's going to be broken, a heavy yoke that's going to be freed, and that in the same way that Gideon defeated all the Midianites, the same power will come into the context of Isaiah so that they could overcome the evil and the brokenness of their lives. Do you remember, remember the story? No, we could do a quick Sunday school lesson. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Do you, do you, your Bible book, your, your picture book? Well, let's talk about that a little bit because that's the backdrop of what Isaiah is talking about. Judges 6, you have one of the judges, because remember in Judges there's no king yet. They're longing for a king. In Judges 6, you have this guy Gideon, and the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, the mighty man of valor. Which is really ironic because when you introduce Gideon into the picture, he doesn't seem very mighty and he doesn't seem very honorable. And he doesn't have much valor. He seems like he's someone who's oppressed and defeated. And at the time that the angel came to Gideon, he was beating the wine press and he was beating the wheat and he was hiding it from the Midianites because the Midianites were powerful, they were bigger, they were oppressing them. So out of fear, Gideon is just trying to take wine, take wheat, hide it from the Midianites, and bring it back to his people. And then he starts conversing with the angel from the Lord, and he gets essentially saying, now why are the Midianites doing this? Why are they oppressing us and defeating us and bullying us? And why are they, why are they doing this? And God, if you're really God, do something about this. And then, you know, you got to be careful for sometimes when God answers your prayers, he does in ways that you wouldn't imagine. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat them, but Gideon, you're going to be my man. You're the main man of valor. Gideon says, show me a sign then that you'll be with me. So in chapter 625, God says, take your father's bull, build an altar as a worship for me. Get rid of all the other altars to the false gods. So Gideon does this, takes 10 men, goes up, not by day, which God told him, but he went by night. You know why? Because he was chicken. He didn't want to be seen in the daytime, but it's funny. He's the mighty man of valor, isn't he? But he's still scared. He puts up the altar he does a worship service, and they wants to hear from the Lord, will you save us? And God says, there's going to be 135,000 Midianite soldiers after you. Gideon, how many people do you have? Do you remember Sunday school? 32,000 soldiers. Tells the soldiers when he gathers 32,000, if any of you don't want to fight this because the odds are crazy, go ahead and go home. How many soldiers went home? 22,000. So that left Gideon about 10,000. And then he goes up to God, and God essentially says, 10,000, that's too many. 
Now, that's too many people. Because if you win with 10,000, you're still going to brag about yourself and boast in yourself. You have to get rid of more people. You know, it's kind of funny. The Old Testament is weird. Like, I don't know why they do certain things. But he says, the way you're going to figure out to small and lessen your army is that take the 10,000, go out there and begin training. And once you're thirsty, you go over to the river. And he says, look at your 10,000 men. And as the people who are lapping the water, you know, they don't get down on their knees. They don't put their face in the river. Look at the men who lap the water. And those are the men that you want. But every other guy who gets on their knees and they drink the water, tell them to go home. And so when he does this, 10,000 men come up. There's essentially 300 men, Leonidas and the 300, lapping the water. Now, at this point, it's funny, different commentators have different perspectives. Now, what, what is going on here? You know, most of the, the children's school, Sunday school books basically picture this guy, uh, 300 men, and they're just, they're vigilant, they're alert. And so they're looking out for the Midianites. They have a sword in one hand, and they're lapping the water like this. No, it's a very valiant picture. But other commentators said, actually, the 300, they're the laziest. The reason the other men had to fall down to the ground and just put their head in the water is because they're training hard, and they give everything they got onto the training field. By the time they drink the water, they're so tired, they just fell down and they had to drink the water. But the 300 who had the strength to stay on their feet and just lap the water, they're just kind of fooling around. They're just having a good time, not taking it seriously. And God says, those are the 300 that I want. Gideon takes the 300, defeats the 135,000, brings victory to the nation of God's people, and what's the point? God chooses the weak. He chooses the frail, the humble, the impossible. He uses the mechanisms and the methodologies that the world doesn't think about in order to flip the economy and the valleys of the world upside down and to bring glory to himself because the only way that 300 people are going to be able to defeat 135,000 Mennonites Midianites is because God is with them. Mighty man of valor. Chapter 8, verse 22, after the win. Everyone loved Gideon and says, let's crown him and make our king. But what does Gideon do? He says, I'm not going to be your king. He doesn't want power. No one in my family is going to be your king. Names his son Abimelech, which is my father is king. So he leaves the throne open. Somebody still has to arise and come. Do you know why? Because that throne can only truly be taken by the God of Gideon and his son, Jesus Christ. That belongs to Jesus. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, there are certain tensions in the Bible, isn't there? You can look at this, and why does God have to do this through a, a, a baby? Well, he's, short of, he's sort of showing you through the story of Gideon. I'm going to use 300, perhaps, of the laziest men, so that I use the frail and the weak. And you're thinking, when it comes to Christianity, there are certain tensions that come and only harmonize in the Bible in God and his son, Jesus Christ. So, for example, some people think the God of the New Testament is so loving, so gracious, like an old sweet grandfather, but the God of the Old Testament is so harsh and so mean, and so, you know, he kills people, and he allows, like, weird things to happen to his people, which is actually a false dichotomy. But how do you have these two tensions come together? Is the God of the Bible 
just and wrath and harsh, or is the God of the Bible loving, merciful, tender, gracious, and truthful? Well, he's both. So how is he going to send a king that's going to reign in righteousness and power? He's going to do it through weakness. How is he going to save the world to bring the nation of Israel and expand it beyond Israel to the church in victorious, glorious kingdom? How is he going to do this? By dying. How is he going to be able to save Judah? Well, it's not going to be through a partnership with Assyria, but assigning and sending a child who is born whose government will be on his shoulder. How in the world can he govern as a little baby? Well, the reason is because this child will be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, will be indicated or hinted at in Judges 6 or 8 and Gideon, which will be shown to us in Isaiah that this child who is born will be a wonderful counselor. He'll be a mighty God. You know what? He's going to be an everlasting father. And he's going to be the Prince of Peace. This baby is Jesus. See, wonderful counselor. It's kind of funny. One of our core values, counseling in a community, we get this from wonderful counselor. That Hebrew word there is the only word that captures this idea that almost conveys supernatural counseling. You want supernatural counseling? Well, we have a counseling center. You know, it's helpful. We fumble along through that. But you want supernatural counseling? Go to the child who is born and a son that is given. Don't listen to Ahaz. Ahaz, don't assimilate with Assyria. Listen to the wonderful counselor because you know what? He's also a mighty God. You want a divine warrior? The reason that God could use the 300 to defeat the Midianites is because the God that Gideon worships is a mighty God. It's a military term. He's a divine warrior. He's going to fight your battles for you. Whoa, who in the world in this church can actually be a wonderful counselor but also be a mighty warrior? Remember, tensions that come together. And on top of that, he says, this son that is born is an everlasting father, which is confusing because you're thinking, I thought Jesus was son and not the father. Why is he everlasting father? It almost sounds like this heresy called modalism, but it's not. It's essentially saying the son of Jesus is being attributed with the power of the father, because in the Old Testament, kings were called fathers. There are political and spiritual fathers and kings of their people. And Jesus comes and he's been given the authority of God the Father, the power of God the Father, the governing power of his heavenly Father. And it leads us to last, but certainly not least, for, us to, for to us a child is born who is the Prince of Peace. It's a wonderful title, a Prince of Peace. And you're wondering, when is this peace coming, even for you and I here today? It wasn't perfect peace back in the days of Isaiah, but we have a bigger picture of it, don't we? Now, if you look at the New Testament, the Prince of Peace comes into this world in a manger. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, do you remember what the angel said about Jesus to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Do you remember what John chapter 14, verse 27 says? Peace I leave you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Luke, the great physician, the doctor. We have some doctors here who probably could relate to Luke. He writes in his book, Acts chapter 10, verse 36. It says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching 
peace through Christ Jesus. He is the Lord of all. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 5? Greatest letter that was ever written potentially. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we have now? Peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite book of the Bible, Ephesians 2.14, For Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace. Colossians 1.20, the mirror letter of Ephesians, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. And that's why the author of Hebrews can end the book of Hebrews with a benediction. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd for the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ our Lord. The baby is the only representation that shows these sort of compelling and competing theological truths to be held in perfect harmony and tension in the person and work of Jesus. If you want to be first, you have to be last. You want to be great, you need to be least. You want to be resurrected, you have to die. You want to be saved, lose yourself. You want to find yourself, lose yourself. It works with everything. Even Proverbs is sort of weird. You want to, you want to gain and learn how to gain more money? Give all your money away. <laughs> you want to get married? Love Jesus more. Stop worrying about getting married. The paradigm of the Christian life is always a little bit ironic and sort of antithetical to the way that the world will tell you. But this is all consummated in Jesus Christ, in the Son, the Savior of the world, the political might. You know, even when he comes into this world, it's confusing to the people. The Son has finally come. The for, us, for to us, a child has been born, and finally we see this child come. But he's not born in a palace. He's born in a dirty manger with animals and the lowly people of society because shepherds were considered the lowliest people on the social cast of that world. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the greatest person has come in humility and gentleness and peace. And you know what? He's the light of the world and he says, in the darkness of your life, the depression that you experience, I come into this world. I'm here. I see where you are. I'm the God of peace. I'm the son of peace. I'm the prince of peace. I know you feel all turmoil and hurt and brokenness, but I have peace for you. It's yours. Take it by faith, by grace, because I died on the cross for you. I rose again from the dead. I'm your high priest, your co-heir, your husband, head of the church. I came here to give you peace in your heart, your relationships, and your lives. What a wonderful counselor. What a mighty God. What an everlasting father. The prince of peace come to us in the Son. Let's turn to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you so much for the prophet Isaiah to think that thousands of years ago, you had the perfect plan, God, to address the circumstances and the struggles of people back in the days of the prophets, but to equally and perhaps more fully to see where we are and that we could see your plan in your son the Prince of Peace, for to us a child is born, a son is given, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you, God, for doing this. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.